Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for August 10th, 2020. A professor from Texas uses this pandemic as a once in a lifetime scientific opportunity to study criminology. Most people go their whole lives without ever getting bitten by a shark or an alligator. We hear from a Florida man who got chomped on by both. Celebrities and athletes seldom shy away from using their fame to champion social causes. So why are they so conspicuously silent on China? All of this starts now. We're still in the midst of this pandemic, although I'm noticing much, much more relaxed behavior, which is changing people's attitudes. But interestingly enough, insofar as we've been enmeshed in this thing for five plus months, you know, it's considered by some to be the largest criminolo- criminological experiment in history. It's like a natural lab. And we're all test subjects locked in this dystopian exploration. So says the influential American criminologist Marcus Felsen, who's a prof of criminology at Texas State University, and he's joined us on the line here in the Oakley Show. Professor Felsen, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you coming on because I'm kind of curious, you know, when you call this the largest criminological experiment in history, explain all of that. Well, first, it's a terrible thing, and and there's no way um, uh, to deny that, all the harm it's done. Um, There is, however, a, a, a kind of a little bit of a silver lining that crime rates overall have gone down, especially crime rates within neighborhoods. Uh, they've, uh, there have been some crime rate increases away from neighborhoods, and there has been some domestic violence increase. So there's a varied picture, but overall crime rates went down, especially during the early uh, lockdown. And now as people are out more, and particularly in those areas where in North America where bars are open, they are uh, getting back into trouble. All right, but you've got a theory that you believe this is sort of uh, putting uh, proof to this theory that you've held for a long, long time as to what does commit crime, and it, it even gives a predictor of sorts to criminal behavior. Uh, bring us up to date on that. Well, the theory is called the routine activity approach, and it states very simply that a crime, a criminal event, requires a convergence of three elements, a likely offender, a suitable target, um, and the absence of a capable guardian against crime. Now, a target can be personal or property, and a guardian is usually not a police officer, but usually any citizen. So, for example, people typically break in your house when you're not there. And, in fact, they're likely to break in when neither you nor the neighbors on either side are there. So when everyone is present at home, the residential burglary goes down. But the bad side of it is that the commercial burglary may go up uh, because the businesses are empty. 
So what you're saying is in the throes of the pandemic where we've been in lockdown, there's been social distancing or people isolating themselves. This is really putting your theory to test. And you believe it's borne out in the results of what you've seen with the criminal activity or the data from that. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah. So what's happened is basically if you separate residential from commercial burglary, you see uh, that the commercial burglary uh, eventually did start going up. The residential burglary was going down. And you also see that in neighborhoods where there's a mixed land use, that is, there are are both um, commercial uh, places to break into and there are lots of residents, uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the the burglary may go up, and that's basically because the, particularly the youths in the area have a place to find a crime target, and there's nobody there watching it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I guess as the landscape has shifted somewhat, or the variables in the equation have been altered, uh, so you can see how this is playing out. Some crimes are down. Whereas I might cite to you, with all of these bailout programs from government, uh, there's been reported anyway widespread fraud. But that's taking advantage because there's no guardian. Yes, <laughs> yes fraud, fraud has a different set of... It's the same idea, um, but it has some other dimensions. For example, uh, how well, as you say, how well, uh, how good are the auditing systems? And very often when there's something very new where people are sending out, government sending out all kinds of money, there's, the auditing system isn't really there. So, Professor, as we're seeing more and more uh, of a reopening, if you will, or relaxing of uh, social rules, I mean, some are still in place. Does that also lead to a shift in types of criminal activity? Um, yes. Um, you Well, for example, domestic uh, um, assault has had an uptick in many areas, while non-domestic assault went down, particularly when the bars were closed, uh, because non, uh, non-domestic assault typically occurs in entertainment districts. Uh, there, so yes, it, it has a very, it does show the variations in crime to show. Uh, also, outdoor crime is an issue, and outdoor crime went down, particularly in the initial lockdown, since most people were not outside. However, there was some uptick in some places in outdoor crime within residential areas. In other words, sometimes the domestic uh, conflicts spilled out onto the, the streets near uh, homes. Again, with Marcus Felsen, professor of criminology at Texas State University, and uh, he's studied the pandemic and criminal behavior and uh, has noticed that something has complied with a theory he's held uh, for a lot of years now. And this is sort of bearing it out because it's a perfect test model, if you will, or laboratory for it. Although we have had heinous crimes, you know, like this mass shooting in Nova Scotia and other aberrant behavior, is that attributable to stress factors, some are saying, or are these outliers and anomalies? Well, I, uh, you could say that all such crimes are anomaly, uh, anomalies even before covid there, there's always something strange about them. There is an issue of gun availability. And, of course, in Canada, you have a better situation than in the U.S., uh, where we have far, far too many guns. Uh, but you do have gun availability in Canada, and so that can happen. 
uh, the uh, the ARN has. But I would not interpret the extreme crimes um, as indicative. Uh, Look at ordinary crimes. One thing about the routine activity approach is we look at routine crimes and routine lifestyles that get that create crime situations, and we look at very ordinary crimes. Most crimes are very, very ordinary. Uh, even murders are more ordinary than you think, because very often when you dig into how a murder occurred, um, it, it, most by the way, start by saying the vast majority of assaults do not lead to a death, but maybe lead to a band-aid and it's only a very small portion of assaults that end up with someone dying Uh, but when that happens um, it usually turns out that it was a stupid little quarrel no different than a simple assault except that uh, something terrible ended up you know professor i'm kind of curious because there's this movement now towards seeing the police defunded if you take out that third leg in your equation or your theory about deterrence or some kind of guardian uh where's that apt to lead us as far as criminal activity well first of all most of the the police defunding discussion is not in effect really about total defunding of police but rather is about um, not giving them increases they want or shifting some responsibilities to mental health or, uh, or other units. So it's not literally defunding. The, the second point to understand is only maybe from 1% to 3% of police time and resources are spent on violent crime. Most of what police do, uh, police are basically bureaucrats, and they have bureaucratic jobs. And they they go and hear complaints, and they fill out forms, and they sit in court waiting, and they give people traffic tickets, and they um, talk to the discharge sergeant about what to do about X, and they ferry prisoners around, uh, suspects around, or they interview people uh, who witness something. And very often when they arrive at a scene, whatever was happening is over. So you do want to have the police, and and you need them, and you want to recognize their role. But also you you have to recognize that most of their role is is either bureaucratic or it's quelling disputes and trying to keep them from escalating. Wow, I was going to say, it's a good thing you're not writing for cops as a TV show. I mean, it would be less than dramatic. It would just be the routine behaviors of police doing mundane tasks as bureaucrats. Uh, if, you, if you do a legitimate show on policing, you wouldn't have any listeners. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, it's been hyped, or I guess uh, exaggerated in terms of dramatic content. Point well taken. Professor Felsen, appreciate your joining us this afternoon and explaining about uh, one aspect of this pandemic that we've not yet explored. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Marcus Felsen, again, professor of criminology with Texas State University and his uh, routine activity theory that says you can almost predict when criminal activity is going to go up. Like, for example, you know, with social distancing or at least people isolating pickpockets in the U.K., they found uh basically done nothing was going on there was no no place to go and pickpockets everybody was in lockdown gotta tell you this crazy crazy story about an experienced fisherman down in the keys in florida he was down there for the lobster mini season uh 
got attacked by a shark, but that's only part of the equation. He also got bit by a gator one time, and uh, I don't know if he's been snake bit, as I was saying before, that would be the trifecta. Let's find out for sure. Joining us on the line right now, Justin Stuller with his stories of Daring Do. Justin, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. How's it going? <laughs> going fine for us. It's you we're worried about. I mean, I said, uh, you know, that would be the trifecta if you were snake bit. Ever been snake bit, by the way? Uh, no, not, well, not, not seriously snake bit. <laughs> recreationally snake bit, I would say. <laughs> All right, but you got bit by a gator and then by a shark, most recently by a shark. Uh, what happened exactly, and uh, what did it feel like? What happened? Oh, it was a pretty crazy experience. We were um, down in the Florida Keys for the mini lobster season. It's a two-day short season before the actual commercial guys go out and catch lobster. A lot of boats, a lot of people, you know, I mean, hundreds of boats out there. and We were uh, catching lobsters, little spiny lobsters all over the place, and uh, shooting a few fish here and there and, you know, just doing, doing keys stuff and, uh, had a fish that was, ended up being too short and put it back in the water. When I put it back in the water, it, uh, didn't kind of go away. It kind of hung out there. So as we, I took it and pushed it down to the bottom and stuffed it in a hole about 20 yards away. And as I was swimming back to the boat, that, uh, shark came out of nowhere and just knocked me down. I mean, bit me on the, on the leg and the knee area and, uh, kind of, one quick clamp and took off. So all I saw was the tail end of the shark, but it was a pretty, pretty exciting experience for sure. Well, exciting isn't the word I would use here, but uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> listen. Uh, so when the shark hit, I mean, what was the sensation or the feeling like? Oh man, it was like, like, uh, like nothing I could really uh, compare it to. It, it, it felt like being hit by a boat and drug across the asphalt at the same time. I mean, it was like an instant, uh, like there was no, no real pain because it had happened so fast. And, you know, I've, I've been in the water many times a whole life and I got two younger brothers and, you know, we sneak up on each other and grab each other by the foot and all those kind of things. And, and this was clearly not somebody messing with me. I mean, it, it hit so hard. It just kind of felt like, uh, like, like, Oh my gosh, what was that? And rolled over and just saw the big shark going away. And I had my, my, I have a four month old, a two year old and a five year old and, Plus, all my, my, my kids, nieces, and nephews were all swimming right next to my boat. So the first thing in my mind was, oh, my gosh, i got to get back and get them out of the water. So as I turned around, they had already, were already kind of climbed out of the water. They seen the commotion of me, and somebody else said something about a shark. And so they were all climbing out as it was, but got back and uh, jumped up on the boat and looked. And, and my, my five-year-old goes, oh, man, he goes, that's, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he, said, he said, at least at least it didn't bite you on the head because then you couldn't wear a hat. Sure, the concerns of a five-year-old. So, uh, yeah. again, and I'm told this was a lemon shark. Uh, they were all over the keys, I guess, and the water's down. So how many stitches did you get? A lot of blood? I ended up not a lot of blood. I uh, I, I carry a uh, very good first aid kit, you know, it's kind of the, the stuff you need, you know, not just Band-Aids and wipes, but, you know, compression kits and things like that and stuff that really... Uh, really came in handy this time. I mean, I've, I've carried it for so long, and I've always said, you know, oh, man, I, you know, what, am, what I carry this thing for, I've never used it. And uh, to, that, that day was the day it came in handy. And, and sure enough, I mean, it, it really made the made the experience a lot less traumatic. There's, there's not a lot of blood. Um, I ended up with 20, 24 stitches and a bunch of these little stary strips all over my legs because it got me in the, in the back of the leg, on the side of the leg, and on the like the top on the knee area, um, you know, it uh, punctured me probably, 
probably 15 times in 15 different places and then some pretty good long lacerations. So it was, uh, it's quite, it, it's, it's up there with the top wounds that I've had. Um, it was, it's a pretty good one. As far as was, was... Record, not, not that bad, but, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, but definitely, uh, ruined my day for sure. I ended up, we had just caught all the lobsters we were allowed to catch for that day. So we were kind of going home, but we had a whole nother day the next day. And I had to, I had to be boat captain and just drive the next day. I wasn't allowed to get in the water. So my wife called me grumpy pants. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> so listen, what was worse, the shark bite or the alligator bite? Cause you got bit by an alligator as well, right? So the, the shark bite was definitely worse as far as, you know, what having to go to the hospital and things like that. The alligator bite was probably worse in, in the, uh, how it went like the alligator had had uh what what happened is we were we were hunting alligators you get tags for alligators you know like they like they do for deer and all the different animals and stuff they do that in florida with with alligators so we had our recreational tags and two guys that were with me and the two guys both had a rope on the alligator and they kind of got tangled up so i went down to kind of you know assess the alligator part of the job why they untangled the ropes and as I was doing that, I had the alligator by the snout, and he decided he didn't want to go with me and rolled out rolled out of my hands, clamped on my leg, and swooped back into the water. And uh, I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I've had my hands on him hundreds of times. I've never had one bite me. I've had him run from me and roll from me, but never had one bite me. And this one, he clamped right on my upper thigh. And uh, it was, uh, you know, they come from pretty dirty water areas, so it was heavily infected pretty quick. I had to take a bunch of antibiotics and stuff like that and get it all cleaned out. And the whole, pretty much my whole leg turned black and blue minus maybe my foot. But it was a, uh, it was quite the, uh, quite the experience. It felt like, you know, just a super hard pressure and then didn't, didn't break anything. I mean, didn't, didn't necessarily break the skin other than where the teeth just went in and individually, but it was a, uh, it was a good, it was a good one. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you got stories to tell, uh, and there you go. Because uh, now I guess you can still wear a hat because he didn't get you. The shark didn't get you on the head, or did the game? Exactly, Justin. I appreciate you sharing those stories with us. This is wild. Uh, stay safe. Uh, you'd think the COVID nineteen is the thing you got to worry about, but evidently not. <laughs> All right. Good to talk to you. All the best. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You- Yep, Justin Stoller again, Florida man, uh, survived being bitten by a gator as well as a shark. We've got a lot of people, athletes, celebrities, and the like, uh, who may be standing up and uh, big proponents for social justice agendas, but when it comes to the communist Chinese regime, they're conspicuously mum. So what is going on? What is that all about? Let's find out. Joining me on the line, James Tager is the Deputy Director of Free Expression Research and Policy at PEN America. That's an organization devoted to defending free expression, supporting persecuted writers, and promoting literary culture. Uh, The network recently released a 94-page report entitled Made in Hollywood, Censored in Beijing. James Tager, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. John, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate it because this one has had me beguiled for a long time now. Uh, I guess we kind of know the answer, but you tell me. Why the hypocrisy that's so rampant? You've got all of these people who are espousing social justice and uh, equality and, you know, for the beleaguered and the downtrodden and oppressed. But not when it comes to the Communist Chinese Party's treatment of Uyghurs, uh, just even the democracy movement in, in Hong Kong. They've gone after Taiwan. How do we account for that kind of hypocrisy? 
Well, as you mentioned uh, in your uh, thoughtful intro, you know, we are a, um, a nonpartisan uh, NGO focused on freedom of expression, both in the United States and around the world. And so one of the things that we've been uh, noting uh, when it comes to this around the world concept of the past several years is we've become increasingly alarmed at the Chinese government's efforts to pressure corporations across the globe into essentially a posture of silence towards anything that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, finds offensive. Um, and Hollywood, we talk about how basically the two-step consideration of the fact that the Chinese economic market for box office for, for movies has become more and more important. It's, it's poised to overtake the U.S. box office this year in terms of the most significant. And all the entryways into that box office are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, including through their censorship system. So we talk about in this report how Hollywood studios, unfortunately, have clear incentives to basically play ball with Chinese censors in order to ensure that their movies get the best possible opportunity to access Chinese theaters. And the results of that are, we worry, um, you know, sort of a, a dumbing down of free expression and artistic freedom to only things that please the most censorious, one of the most censorious regimes in the world, uh, the country that has the most significant pre-publication pre censorship system. So that's essentially the crux of our report. So what you're saying in a nutshell is Hollywood has sold its soul for filthy lucre. Well, you know, we, we, we talk about how the incentives, unfortunately, are, are becoming more and more significant, and that's why we actually wanted to put out this report now, because we are worried that if trends continue, Hollywood uh, insiders will essentially be more and more pressured to self-censorship and this is self-censor, and this issue will become worse and worse, which is why we end the report by actually saying now is the time to talk about this much more publicly, to push Hollywood to have a unified response. Well, that's critical. I mean, it, to be unified then uh, would get the Communist Chinese Party's attention. Uh, however, there are outliers still. I mean, people who are benefiting uh, very uh, tremendously from the... They're basically turning a willful blind eye. That's going on. I mean, you can cite some people, I'm sure. Uh, Jackie Chan is often mentioned in that regard. Is that right? Well, yeah. Um, well, we mentioned in the report uh, that essentially, you know, we're looking to raise up Hollywood's willingness to kind of... Uh, be critical and speak truth to power. And we actually say, you know, listen, Hollywood has benefited from a um, a reputation of being willing to speak truth to power to the United States, and that's something we're not, we have no problem with. We just ask for the same standard to be applied to uh, their activity, to kind of how they depict uh, the rest of the world. Uh, and so when we talk about little ways that plot has been changed, dialogue has been changed, settings have been changed, in movies. Each of these decisions may seem individually not to be that significant, but collectively they play a role in shaping the way the world looks at not just China as a country, but the Chinese government. And that's something that, you know, we think really needs to be looked at with a lot of concern. So uh, why specifically Hollywood or exclusively to Hollywood uh, when there are other things like uh, social media, uh, Google, for example, uh, changing their rules of engagement specifically to accommodate the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, we've got the NBA. They capitulated in the case because Nike's got factories in China and there are big contracts for people like LeBron James and so on and so forth. As I was mentioning off the hop, uh, when the general manager of the Houston Rockets came out, uh, you know, they tamped him down. Uh, the league did, the the, uh, the commissioner and so on. So why are you specifically, is it the soft cultural power wielded by Hollywood? 
Yeah, it's a great question, and, and there are a couple things to note there. I mean, firstly, we put out a report on China's social media uh, censorship uh, system in 2018, and that's also on our website, shamelessplug, www.pen.org. Sorry about that, John. But oh. more importantly, because, uh, because basically Hollywood is the world's most sophisticated storytelling industry, and at PEN America, being an organization that was founded almost 100 years ago by writers, we're essentially concerned with the craft of storytelling and making sure that storytellers and artists feel like they are free from censorious pressures from any government, regardless of where that government is located. So it felt like with Hollywood specifically, now is a particularly important time for us to take a look at this issue and, and, and start by discussing it honestly. So, James, have you got any examples of where maybe movies have been adulterated to uh, accommodate the sensibilities of the regime in China? Yeah, our report has quite a few. And one example I keep pointing to is uh, uh, an example that I think helps represent how these things may seem small individually, but collectively they add up. We talk about the, uh, the movie World War Z, which some of your uh, listeners may know was based on a book. And in the book, the origin of the fictional zombie virus was set in China. And the author of the book, Max Brooks, has talked publicly about how at least part of the reason he decided to set the origin of this fictional virus in China was to say, well, gee, under this China censorship system, it has public health effects. When you rigorously censor the information that's getting out from anywhere, you may miss um, you know, public health information, vital public in- health information uh, on epidemics. Now, this, was, this point was removed from the movie. Studio executives kiboshed this point from the movie. So that, you know, um, essentially it's unclear where the virus comes from. It's never explained. And I'm sure they may have thought to themselves, well, who cares? It's just a backdrop for Brad Pitt to shoot zombies anyway. But fast forward to where we are now, and we see, you know, as part of its response to the coronavirus, uh, China, the Chinese government has jailed independent journalists, um, has silenced whistleblowers has, you know, continued uh, censorship strictures designed to basically make sure that only they are able to kind of control uh, the information about the virus uh, and their own responses to it. And so when we compare that to Hollywood's unwillingness to tell a story about a fictional virus and to add a China-related point, it contrasts uncomfortably with the Chinese government's own willingness to uh, to basically manage the reputation for how it responded to the virus as well. So, James, are you confident that Hollywood would muster the moral courage to, in a unified way, in a concerted fashion, to really call communist China out on this? Well, we make our recommendations pretty specific in part because, uh, you know, we're clear-eyed about the fact that these are massive economic incentives. And that's why we start by actually calling for two major um, recommendations. Number one is a pledge from Hollywood studios that they will not respond to censorship requests from Chinese censors by censoring the worldwide version of the release. Uh, you know, we simply cannot kind of reduce the storytelling we tell to the lowest common denominator of what would be acceptable uh, from uh, any governmental censor. Uh, and secondly, we call for disclosure. We actually call for Hollywood studios to, to kind of publicly disclose when they receive these censorship uh, requests. And it's our hope that, that that at least will put in the foundation 
for more significant Hollywood action on the issue. Because censorship, and especially self-censorship, it thrives in obscurity, it thrives in invisibility, and sunlight continues to be an amazing disinfectant. So the more that people are publicly at least able to view how their movies may be changed, the more we can have an honest conversation about it with the goal of having a more significant, unified response that stands up for freedom of expression around the world. Yeah, and finally, I mean, uh, this is a story that's just happened within the last 24 hours. Uh, I guess it's the activist, and, uh, well, he's a democracy activist in Hong Kong, as well as a publisher, I guess, of a paper there. Tommy Lai, I think that was his name, or Lai, I mean... Jimmy Lai. Jimmy yeah. Lai. Uh, should we, how should yeah, we be concerned about this development? It's very concerning. Um, you know, we have uh, been... Um, we have put out actually a couple major reports on the situation for press freedom in Hong Kong specifically, looking at things like the Causeway Bay bookstore disappearances, which happened in 2015 by booksellers who were essentially um, forcibly abducted by Chinese state agents. We had a previous report looking at the diminishing uh, space for press freedom in Hong Kong as well. And certainly these newest, uh, these newest occurrences just deep in our alarm, and I think uh, you know all people across the globe should be uh, should be watching very carefully to make sure that uh, press freedoms are respected, and that the newest arrest of Jimmy Lai is is uh, is a, a, a significant indication of the contrary. Something we're very concerned about. Well, you're doing important work. I really appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Did you want to hit us with that website again? The, <laughs> the gratuitous hey, plug is www.pen.org. Pen, like the writing implement, and yep. all of our um, reports are publicly and freely available there. Good to spend some time. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk in the future. Good luck with the work. Thanks for having me. You got it. James Tager, Deputy Director of Free Expression Research and Policy at PEN America. And that's the Oakley Show podcast for August 10th, 2020. We'll see you back here tomorrow or any weekday afternoon from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. And if you're not in the GTA, you can listen live at 640toronto.com. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.